1 Timothy chapter 3. Jesus sent his followers into the world to make disciples. We are not called into all the world to create Christian cultures. There will be, I do not believe, any genuinely Christian culture until Jesus Christ rules in his millennial kingdom from the throne in Jerusalem over all the world. Until then, he has called us to honor and obey the ruling authorities, the secular authorities who are ordained by God to preserve societal order. Now, do not understand me. Jesus is Lord of every inch of this planet. He is Lord now. It is not something that he will become someday. We do not concede ultimate sovereignty to any secular authority. However, The mission on which Jesus has sent us does not include the establishment of Christian cultures throughout the world. Jesus calls us to live upright and morally attractive lives as pilgrims, influencing our culture with the transforming gospel of Jesus Christ. Having said that, The Christian culture that we are called to construct is the culture of the local church of Jesus. Within the household of God, we are to actively establish a culture that reflects the glory and the wisdom of Jesus Christ in conformity to God's will revealed in His Word. Such a church culture will be cross-cultural, and it will be anti-cultural. What do I mean by cross-cultural? The principles that we find in God's Word for the order in His household cross all cultures. They are to be applied in diverse cultures across the world. We are laboring together in this book of 1 Timothy, and as we work together, this information by the grace of God is going to be transferred to Zambia in just a few months, where these very same concepts will be taught God willing, to Zambian pastors. I do not plan to go with a separate set of notes. Now there will be distinct applications, certainly, that will be taken to Zambia. It's a whole different world. And the pastors that are there will need to think about how these truths apply in their culture. But we don't come with a different message. The message that God has laid out in His Word for Jewish culture in the early Christian church for the early Gentile church, is the same as is applied here. It looks different in its application, certainly, but it is cross-cultural. It is to be taken into all cultures of the world. The church of Jesus Christ is to reflect His glory wherever this truth is taken. But it is, secondly, anti-cultural. We set our goals by the standard of God's Word, not by the standard of our world. And we've noted this as we're working our way through. When you stop to think about it, chapter 1 is very anti-cultural. It is at fundamental odds with the culture of pluralism and multiculturalism. There is truth, and all people must line up with it. That's the culture of the church of Jesus Christ, according to chapter 1. And those that are outside of the teaching that God has given to His church are to be corrected They are to stop their teaching. They're to readjust their thinking to the truth. 
We've seen this anti-cultural bent in chapter 2, where we find instruction, particularly in verses 11 and following, that is at fundamental odds with the culture of feminism. These are words that sound so very strange in our world because we have a very distinct culture from what God is laying out for His church in 1 Timothy chapter 2. As we come to 1 Timothy 3, it's no different. The anti-cultural agenda continues. We are given cross-cultural, anti-cultural instruction for the kind of leaders Jesus wants us to establish in the local church of Christ. And for the members of the church, this is not a spectator sport. We are to work together in active application of God's will concerning the standard that He designs for the culture of the local church. And as we work to that end, we find here in chapter 3, as you note in the text, two offices. Church leaders, described in this chapter as overseers, verses 1 through 7, and deacons, verses 8 through 13. Today, we want to focus in on the overseer, which we find in these first seven verses. Let's first of all spend some time to identify the office. The identification of the office, as we find in verse 1, and will spill out into other texts of Scripture. The saying is trustworthy, Paul writes to Timothy, who's overseeing the church at, at Ephesus and setting overseers in the assembly. The saying is trustworthy. In other words, take careful note. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. The office of overseer, actually the ESV supplies the word office for us. It's not in the original text, but it is certainly the idea. Uh, the episcopate, the one who aspires to the episcopate, and here just put for us a little more simply, office of overseer. The overseer, this translation is a good translation of that Greek word episkopos, one who oversees the ministry of a local church. We, I think, understand this word in part as we contrast down there with verse 8 and deacons. Deacons in verse 8, by contrast, render a ministry of service with special emphasis on the physical needs of the community. Overseers render a ministry of spiritual watch care, of evangelistic mission, and of teaching of God's Word. There's a distinction between these two offices, though they work very much in sync with one another. So overseer as we understand it, it brings up to the question, is this some unique office that we don't have in our church? Do we have overseers? Is there an overseer of our assembly in questions such as this? I think one thing we've got to grab here quickly is that overseer is used interchangeably with the word elder in the New Testament. Let me demonstrate that to you. Acts chapter 20 and verse 17. This will be familiar to some, not as much to others, but overseer and elder is really just the same office. It's two words used for the same individual. Acts chapter 20 and verse 17, from Miletus, Paul sends to Ephesus and calls the elders of the church to come to him. So a meeting with the elders. As we work our way through the text, we come to verse 28, where he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves, you elders, and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. In fact, we're even in the very city of context in 1 Timothy. 
So the elders here are referred to as those that are set within the assembly to exercise oversight. In 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 17, we find another parallel text here within the book that we are studying. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 17, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. The idea of ruling well is the same concept of exercising oversight. So the elder overseer is one office. And early church documents in the ancient church evidence this knowledge. that There's an understood interchangeability between these words. So we're dealing here with two offices, not with three. Now some have misunderstood that, this. In fact, early in the second century, there developed what is referred to as the monarchical episcopate. Think of monarch and overseer. The singular bishop was the individual who ruled the church in a location, usually in a larger city, at least uh, prototypically in a larger city. This bishop would rule over the elders and the deacons in local assemblies within that region or within that city. I think it is clear that this is not what we are being taught here in Scripture. First of all, why would we come to a book, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, that is ordered to give us instruction on how to behave in the household of God? And here we have overseer and deacons, and there's this glaring omission of elders. That would really not work very well, and I don't think that's at all what's going on. Secondly, the singular use of overseer here is not to be pressed. It's just generic. And I think it's influenced by the word anyone in verse 1. He says, if anyone, that's singular, aspires to the office of overseer, he, singular, desires a noble task, therefore an overseer, singular. I think he's just being consistent in the terminology that's being used here. Not setting up a third office, so to speak, or a um, superior office that rules over elders and deacons and the flock. Thirdly, I think the elder overseer pastor we see in Scripture are always found working together as a team that arises from within the local body, not chosen by powers outside of the assembly. Now this is a very uh, straightforward Baptist reading of this text, but there are many others besides Baptists who see this. There are two offices in the New Testament text. And the idea of setting one bishop over a city who dictates terms to the local assemblies was something that developed for understandable reasons in the history of the church, but did not come out of the New Testament text. They're not good exegesis. Let me just turn you, if you will, turn to Philippians chapter 1 and just see one evidence, I think, of this plurality of both within local churches. We find in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1, Paul and Timothy writing to the Philippian church, and he says here, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. So here, overseer is used in the plural. It is used parallel with deacons. And again, we would ask here, why are we missing the elders? If there's the idea of one bishop, many elders, and many deacons working within a particular city. So all of this, I think, serves very good support to the idea that we have elders slash overseers as one office in the church and deacons as another office in the church. We use the word pastors very commonly. That word is really not an official 
title within the New Testament, but rather a function. Shepherd is something you do as opposed to something that you are, but it's not a problem to speak of a pastor who shepherds. Obviously, it works and we use it culturally and it's not a bad term by any means. But in the New Testament text, you'll find overseer, elder as the title of the office. Now, as we go back to chapter 3 and verse 1, we have here this desire that is referred to. Let me just stop on that for just a moment. This is not, of course, a self-promoting, grasping desire. Some have even pictured it this way. That if a person has a lust and a craving for power, that's the kind of guy you want to lead the church. Well, I wonder if those people read the Gospels very often. That's, of course, not what Jesus would teach us. The spiritual shepherd is not a position of prominence. It's not a prize for the politically ambitious. The position of elder overseer is a call to die. It's a call to pour out your life in love to others and to serve all of your life telling other people what someone else said. It's not a position of prominence. It's a call to serve. Not everyone who has this desire, this inner craving to serve Christ's flock, a spiritual shepherd, is qualified to do so. And that might be a hard thing to say at times, but it's something we need as a church to be able to exercise that discernment. And to say because an individual wants to be the leader of a church does not mean necessarily that they are qualified to do so. This is a group project. It's not just what's in the individual's heart, but as Paul looks at that good desire, he turns then to Timothy, and he turns really, I think, through him to the entire assembly to say this is a community decision. But it is a good work. And literally, the Greek text reads that way, a good work, as opposed to a noble task. I guess task is, is certainly useful, but a good work. Both of these words fit within the way the ESV translates it, but it is a work. And let's say that again, it is a work. Any man who lacks self-initiative, a strong inner motivation, or self-discipline should not apply. It's a work. And it's a work that you have to be motivated from within and from God to fulfill. We have here the identification of the office. Paul then moves to the character qualifications of the man. The character qualifications of this individual, beginning at verse 2. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. Now, this gets a little, this is listy, okay? We're looking at word after word after word here, and I don't want to sit too long in any one. We could turn each one into an entire sermon, but we're just going to move our way through it fairly quickly, but we need to try to stay awake and discern. And I think one way we do this is not simply to say, I'll try to remember this the next time we look at someone for the position of overseer, but rather to look at this as this is God's wisdom to us as the kind of character He wants all of us to pursue for the most part. There will be a few requirements that don't apply to us individually, but this is the kind of life that he wants us to live together in community. So think of it that way and allow the Spirit to teach you and indeed to convict as we go through this list. First of all, he must be above reproach. This appears to be an overarching qualification because as we come back to verse 7, the same theme is resounded. And many have seen here an overarching requirement that applies in all of that which follows. Now what does it mean to be above reproach? It's certainly not sinless perfection. And uh, God 
be thanked for that. It would be impossible for us to ever see an elder serve within the church if that was the standard, that no one could ever say that the person had sinned. No, the point is that no one can fairly pin on him any charge of immoral conduct or weakness of character. People will readily see that he's not perfect. That's not going to take very long at all. The closer they get to him, the more his weaknesses will come into view. But when godly, gracious people assess his shortcomings, do they see in him their own struggles and understand Or do they see in him moral deficiency that detracts from the testimony of the church? If they say, I can identify with that struggle, it might not even be something that they personally have, a struggle they personally have, but they can say, I can identify with that. Of course he's weak. Of course he's not a perfect man. But is there anything in his life that detracts morally from the testimony of the gospel? He is to be, secondly, the husband of one wife. The Greek text reads a one-man woman. It reads it in that order, and it uses those words. One could translate a one-wife husband. I think the meaning is identical between the two. And so I go with just the more generic, a one-man woman, which means a one-wife husband. And the one is in an emphatic position. It's being emphasized in the text. It is an uncommon phrase. This is not a phrase we find repeatedly throughout the New Testament. And consequently, let me take you to the history of interpretation for just a brief excursus here. And I'm going to land on this one for some time because there is really no debate on what any of the other requirements mean. This is the one that's very debatable. And when did that debate begin? It began nearly 2,000 years ago. Do you remember last week when we looked at chapter 2, verses 11 through 15? And we looked at the position of women in the church with respect to teaching men. And I noted last week that there were 19 centuries of agreement on what that text meant. Then, following the feminist movement as it got hold, we all of a sudden had all kinds of different views on what it meant that a woman should not teach a man in the assembly. That is not the case with the one-woman-man qualification. We have 2,000 years of debate on what this phrase means. So if there's any sense that somehow this is a cultural thing because of the prominence of divorce that's growing within our culture, that's not really the case. In fact, we don't have near the problem of divorce yet that the ancient world did. I think we're pretty close, and we're getting there, and it is a massive problem. But that is not the case with this phrase, that it is somehow now, after 19 centuries of agreement on what it meant, now all of a sudden we have all kinds of different views. We've had different views from the beginning. This point is simply that. Early church documents reveal this wide-ranging debate. Now, let me, for sake of argument, because this gets a bit complicated, let me just lay out the views we're going to look at. There are views we're not going to look at because they're so far out that they're not even worth our time here in this brief time. If you want to talk to me more about those, that would be fun. But uh, I'll not bore you with some of the stranger views and arguments. But one has been through the years that marriage is being required here of the overseer of a church. One who serves as elder within a church has to be married, and that's the point. The second view is that this individual is to have one marriage ever. 
So this would be even in the case of the death of a mate, only one marriage ever. The third view is that this is a ban on anyone who has ever experienced divorce in his life. That person would be permanently removed from consideration. One wife at a time. This would say that a man who came into the assembly, who came to Christ as Savior and had three wives, he is not fitted to be a leader in the church and should not be put in that position. And the final view is that he is one who is devoted as a husband. Now let's walk through these very quickly. I'd like to just review here without turning this into a lecture as such, but to think through it and to think through it carefully because this is not an easy uh, idea uh, to grab. Is it true that the man must be married? Is that what Paul is teaching? I think if this was a case, the word one makes absolutely no sense. Why say one man woman? There's no reason for that word, for that idea. He could simply say he has to be married. But it doesn't say that. In 1 Corinthians 7, in fact, Paul argues that singleness provides unique opportunity to serve God. Why would Paul then turn around and restrict a man from the pastorate who is unmarried? On the force of this argument, we would also have to conclude that the man must have at least two children. If we're going to say he's got to be a one-woman man, then he has to manage his children well, which means he can't have one child, he's got to have at least two children. This is way over-reading. This is over-reading the, the passage. It is not a requirement for marriage. That's not what is being said here. That's not what Paul intends. The second idea, one marriage ever. Many, many believers have held this view. And it is a consistent view, I think. However, there's problems. In Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, and 1 Corinthians 7, verses 8 and 9, Paul argues that death terminates the marriage covenant and frees the living mate to remarry. So, are we to exclude from office any man who exercises the very liberty that Paul grants to those who have lost a mate? It seems to be in conflict with what Paul said. If your mate dies, you are free to marry, and there should be then, there's no evidence that there would be any reason to restrict such a person from leadership in the church on the basis that his mate died and he married another, as the Bible gives him freedom to do. The third view is that this is one who was never divorced. Now, I would say this may be an application to what is said here, but it cannot be the meaning. This is not what he intends to say. If Paul intended to merely exclude divorced men, he would say so. It can't be one who has been divorced. It would be very simple to say that. There's a Greek word for divorce, and Paul studiously avoids that word here and in other places. This is not a strong argument against, but I think it's something to come to terms with, and that is the historical support for this view is very weak. There is no evidence of this view in the early church. I've uh, looked with the help of others this week, and I appreciate their help. We've looked at 38 significant commentators this week on this view. Not one of them takes the view that this is restricting a divorced man. Other than there were two voices that spoke to this end, but they offered no exegetical support at all. There was nothing that dealt with the text of Scripture. It was just saying this should be a logical conclusion because of X, Y, and Z. And I understand that. Again, I don't have a problem with the church applying that by way of application if they choose to do so and believe it's faithful to do so. But it's not the meaning of the text. 
The only legitimate option for those that would say it restricts someone who has been divorced is to go with the second option here, that one marriage ever is the view. So if you're going to be faithful, I think, with what this text could mean, then to say that it restricts someone who has been divorced, you should also say that it restricts someone who has been remarried after the death of a mate. Because that distinction, I don't think, can be borne out here in the passage. It's not the meaning of the text. Again, it might be an application. Fourth, a one wife at a time. There is perhaps universal agreement that it does mean this that a man who comes in with two or three wives should not lead the church. I don't think anybody's arguing against that view. The question, of course, is that all that it means? Is Paul just meaning to restrict the polygamist? Well, certainly he is restricting the polygamist from church office, but is that all that he means? This view has strong historical support. It is held by a host of early church fathers, John Calvin, A.T. Robertson, D.A. Carson, Wayne Grudem today. Many good exegetes and voices through Scripture hold this view, and I think it's a very legitimate view, that all he's saying is you can't have more than one wife. There is a problem with this view, however. Let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 9. In 1 Timothy 5 and verse 9, we read this, Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband. In this phrase, the wife of one husband, we have the mirror opposite of the Greek language in the previous passage. Chapter 3, verse 2. So we have a one-man woman. Since this phrase is odd, since it's unique, since it studiously avoids the idea that many ideas that we might supply with it, and since in that culture there was no such thing as polyandry, the marriage to numerous husbands, this seems to be a very hard position to take. That all it's restricting is that the man cannot have multiple wives, when in the parallel passage, using the mere opposite phrase, it's not talking about multiple husbands. So if we get any cue out of what this odd phrase means, it would be supplied in Paul's own writings with the very same phrase in the reverse, and there it does not mean multiple husbands. So I don't think here it can be pressed to mean multiple wives. And I've even seen... Uh, one commentator that took that view and took a different view of 5.9. You can do that if you want and say it means one thing in 3.2 and another thing in 5.9, but I think that's extremely inconsistent when you have such a unique and strange phrase as this to read them both very differently. This brings us to the final option that is here before us on the screen, and that is fidelity in one's marriage. All other qualifications that we find here in 1 Timothy 3 address positive, current character traits. Each one of them is about who the man is now. Fitting into that pattern, one would be seen in this view as qualitative. In other words, as we find in Deuteronomy, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. When you hear one, ehad, in the Hebrew, used that way, it's not simply saying he's one and not two. It's saying he's unique. There's a uniqueness to our God. He is indeed one God, numerically, but there's a quality that is there. And I think that is the emphasis here 
in parallel in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 2. This is a qualitative idea. Going back to 1 Timothy 5 and verse 9, this one man woman would seem very odd if she were never to be remarried. In verse 14, let me turn there of chapter 5, he says, So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. So he's encouraging younger widows to marry. Is a widow who honors Paul's counsel then to be set aside from the list of widows that he's setting up here? Again, that seems that Paul's in conflict with Paul. You would just honor his direction and thereby be disqualified as being supported by the church as a widow. Indeed, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't seem to follow at all. So here in 1 Timothy 5, the idea, again, it can't mean multiple husbands. It doesn't seem to mean that she can never remarry. So it seems to say she's one devoted to her husband. She was uniquely belonging to one man. And I think as we come back then to 1 Timothy 3, using that as a key, we can say that the intention here is that he is a man who is devoted to his wife. I believe that's all that the text is saying. Now how we apply that, how we go about that uh, within context, I've tried to give argument here to say it's a position that's been thought through. Obviously people take different positions. How we apply it, how we look at it, can be discussed, but as we get to the meaning of the text, I think there's good reason to not hold to these other positions that precede the devoted husband position here on the screen. What does it mean, certainly, without any question? Uh, I think we can rule out a man who comes with multiple wives. In fact, we should probably call the authorities if one comes that way, being that we live here in Minnesota. I know there's some states you can get away with that, but uh, you can't here, and that's not an issue. But what does it mean? It means he should not be a man who is flirtatious. He should not be one who connects with other women through such means. It means that he should have, I think, healthy, constructive relationships with other women. I think often there's an indication that a man has something morally wrong when he can only talk to his wife. In fact, Timothy is instructed in this book to treat other women like sisters. And like mothers, you don't get real far when you ignore mom. You know, she's going to be calling you pretty soon and say, what's going on? Why won't you ever talk to me or ever look at me? I don't think that's the right concept here, that a man should never look at another woman, should never talk to another woman, should never have a healthy relationship with her. But does he ever cross the line into flirtation? Is there ever a question that his loyalties are not with his wife? Then he's a man that should not even be considered. Certainly, it would speak to pornography and other vices such as this. A man who's struggling in that area is not ready to lead the church of God. And I think the vast majority of men can walk on the edge of that all their life because it's an an interest, it's a lure, it's a pull, but he should not be in it. He should be outside of that circle, outside of that problem. Not outside of the temptation, but outside of the vice. It certainly says that there should be, as he is judged, a clear, obvious sense that he loves his wife and is loyal to her in every way. This is the man that God is looking for. Now this is, homiletically speaking, hard. We've gone on this long 
trail on one word, and now we're going to come back and shift it into high gear and fly through the rest. But that's because this one's debated. But if you can take a deep breath, come back with me, let's go through a little further. He's to be sober-minded, clear-minded, self-controlled is the idea. A man who's not rash or silly. He may play the part of the absent-minded professor now and then, trying to protect myself here, but, but uh, he, he's not an airhead, okay? He's, that's, that's not the idea. He's, he's self-controlled. That is, he's a disciplined man in mind and body and emotion. He's respectable. The Greek here speaks of one who leads a well-ordered life. In his appearance and deportment, he gains people's respect. He doesn't turn them off. He is hospitable, verse 2, the Greek indicating a lover of guests. He cares for people, and he's willing to give of himself to meet their needs. In the context, think of Ephesus as this crossroads, and many traveling ministers coming within the confines of the city, and there's no hotel system to care for people. Christians had to stay in Christians' homes as they traveled on the business of Christ, sometimes even on secular business. He's got to be one who's op- who can open his home, can share his things, can open his arms to others. He needs to love people and care for them. He needs to be one who's able to teach. We need to stop for weeks on this one. We could, but we just have to move through quickly. But it is crucial to the defense of true doctrine and the feeding of the flock of God that he's one who has some capacity to teach the Word of God. Some connection with people that allows them to listen and hear and understand. He can't be one that's so far up there that nobody knows what on earth he's talking about. I mean, it might be good for him to go into philosophy or something like that. Or technology, as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) But, you know, if he's talking way over everybody's head all the time, that's not going to work. Nor is it going to work if he can't read a book. Certainly in our setting, this is the case. Is he capable of study? of comparing ideas, searching out answers, looking through matters, and discerning God's will. Let's turn to Titus chapter 1 and verse 9 real quickly as this is brought out a little bit more clearly in Paul's instructions to Titus. He must must hold, Titus 1.9, firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This has to be one who can handle the Word of God to some degree. And I do think within those who are elders and and overseers that there can be a distinction of emphasis in their work, but an elder needs to be one who can communicate to people the truth of God on some level and stand against false doctrine. He is not to be a drunkard, 1 Timothy 3. He is not to be a drunkard. The Greek speaks of one who lingers long over the wine, probably reflecting the context of diluted wine, which was the pattern in the culture. And so one would need to stay for a while at the wine in order to get a buzz out of it. He's not one who's addicted to destructive chemicals, certainly in in a lot of different applications, I'm sure, that we could draw there. But he's not given to life-dominating sin. He's not drawn down by these cravings of the flesh. He is not violent. That is, not a bully. And there are pastors who can be bullies, and it puts you in a spot where you can be a bully if you want to be, and it's a hard call sometimes. But he's not to be pugnacious or 
argumentative or a fighter. But in contrast is to be one who is gentle. The word speaks of yielding, forbearing, lenient, considerate. It's a legal term of one who does not press the letter of the law. Does not insist on his every right being realized. One who is gentle with people can stand back and be lenient. He's not quarrelsome. Here again, not a quarreler. He's uncontentious. He does not stir up fights. He is rather a peacemaker. He's not to be a lover of money. He's to be content with what he has and he will need to be in so many contexts. There will be some rare context in which he may have access to significant money. He's got to be one who can see that money and not want it. He needs to be one who can give it away and not be serving for money. But in most contexts, he will be in a situation where he better not love money because he won't have it. And it will be a weight upon his soul. Certainly there is a response on the part of the church in this matter, and Paul discusses that. But here we're looking at the heart of the man. There should be no craving to get rich. It seems to me that the gate is fairly well guarded there. Because if a guy craves to get rich, I don't think it crosses most of their minds to go into the pastorate or something like that. They'd be, they need some counsel if that's what they're thinking. It's not really the fastest way to riches. Except when there are liberties that are taken, and when the church is used as a means of money, there are those who can go very, very far with it. He's got to be free of the love of money. Now, those are character traits. If you can plow with me a bit further, we move then to what I think could be classified relational qualifications of the man. I don't want to press this distinction in the outline, but we do see a relational issues brought up here beginning at verse 4. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. To manage the household, you have to have a biblical worldview to even understand this, to be able to link up with it. To manage his own household speaks of his stewardship as a man within his home. To manage, the Greek word means to lead in a caring manner. It has that sort of a flavor to it. To lead in a caring manner. He's to show vision. He's to show initiative and leadership skills in the way that he guides and cares for his family. He's to do this with dignity. That is, he's not one who manipulates his children's obedience. He's not one who cajoles them into doing what he wants them to do. His children are to obey him. They are to follow through with what he wants. Not because he pleads with them, not because he manipulates or harms them, but because he knows how to lead them into the moral responsibility of obedience. He should do so in a dignified manner. That is, with calm and dignified leadership, he should be able to steer the ship of his home so that his children walk in submission. He must adopt a certain biblical model here, a model of the family that the Scriptures indicate. Do you see that word submission? That says something. This disqualifies many people who walk into the doors of the church from ever being a leader in that assembly because they don't look at children from a biblical perspective. 
The permissive parenting style that our culture promotes renders many unqualified for office. He must go against the stream here. He must exercise loving authority and correction to lead his children to do what they should do, not what they are dictating that they want to do. He must know how to lead his children to honor that leadership. Now why on earth does that matter? Why does this matter? Verse 5 gives the reason. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Here's the rationale. Church leadership is of the same nature as family leadership. The church is God's household. So, discern how a man leads his home, how he gives direction to his wife, how he gives direction to his children, how he takes initiative, exercises stewardship within the home, and that pretty much will show how he will operate within the church. Now certainly a man can get over his head in a church setting, and that happens from time to time. But generally speaking, you look at how he leads his home, and that is how he will function in the church. If his home is a mess, if his relationship with his wife is, is off kilter, if he is not able to direct his children with dignity unto submission, he needs to be sanctified, he needs to be encouraged, he needs to be led along, he needs to be mentored, but he should not be entrusted with leadership in the church because that's exactly how he'll lead the church. And he'll lead it right down like he's leading his home right down. His relationship to his family. Secondly, his relationship to the a believing community, I think, is at reference, and I might be forcing this a little bit, but he must not, verse 6, be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Not a recent convert, I think, leads us to size him up with the rest of the congregation. As we've shared numerous times in our trips through Lithuania, I would ask at each church, who here is a second-generation Christian? Never saw one hand in any church raised on that question. Now what a mature believer is then in Lithuania is going to be a bit different than what it is here. And we could take it from Lithuania and go to other places where you have whole cultures and whole regions and whole towns where there is no one that has been saved for ten years. And so how you define a new convert depends a little bit on how the person stacks up against the rest of the church. We see in the New Testament some who are seated in this position in fairly rapid order. Uh, Acts chapter 14. But the rationale here, of course, is that as Satan fell in pride, so the new convert may be similarly tempted when his promotion to church office clouds his judgment. There's such great wisdom here. It's so easy to see someone come to Christ or even to see a new uh, member come into the church and for everyone to say everything positive that they can and to look at everything in the best of light, and you should. But as Paul said to Timothy, don't lay hands on anybody quickly. Take your time. Allow there to be the display of character over time. Don't put someone there too fast. Don't put someone who's a new believer there. It might be cloud their thinking, 
and they may fall into the very trap Satan fell into, the trap of pride and rebellion against God. Take your time. Verse 7, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders. We have a third relational issue here, his relationship to his family, to the believing community, and now to the unbelieving community. He must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. You can fall into the trap Satan fell into. You can fall into the trap Satan is setting, I think is the way of reading this. And it can be read different ways, but I think that's the right interpretation. Satan is setting a trap here of disgrace for the one who will not live above reproach in this world. There is a relationship that the man needs to have to the unbelieving community, and it needs to be above board. And so the list ends where it started, with reputation. In view here, of course, is the candidate's reputation on the outside, but it will show itself on the inside. And obviously, key here is the advance of the gospel. Why does any of this matter? Chapter 1 and verse 11. It is the advance of the gospel that is at issue. We must not get in the way of what God is seeking to do in the unbelieving community. And so the man must have a good reputation. Now, of course, that has to be balanced, doesn't it? There are people who've pretty much let me know that they really despise me in this community. Uh, they don't like me. They don't like what I say, and they've said some nasty things about me. But the reason for those nasty things have been things that I have said that I believe the Bible teaches. So you have to balance that. There will be those who don't like a person. But if the reason they don't like you is because you are a first-class jerk, you shouldn't be leading the church. If the reason they don't like you is the offense of the gospel, God be praised. And may we continue forward. I don't get nearly enough heat, I don't think, but I'm always thankful for the heat that comes from our community because at least it lets us know we're in somewhat on track. But he's got to be one who in his external deportment, in his relationship with unbelievers, does nothing to bring disrepute to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They might be offended at God and his word, but they shouldn't be offended at the individual. God is very concerned with our reputation in the community. He wants us to live quiet, peaceable lives. Remember chapter 2? So that the gospel has free course. And that's what's at issue here. As we stop... Take one more deep breath and plow with me just a little further. We're going to go one step deeper and we won't linger long. But I think we need to say here an assessment on this passage. Character matters. Character matters. D.A. Carson remarks on this passage, In some respects, the list is remarkable for being unremarkable. In other words, there is nothing about superior IQ, charisma, powerful personality, or anything of the like. It's well said. It's unremarkable, an unremarkable list. We are reminded that a church must never place a higher priority on ability or personality than it places on character. We're also reminded that church office is not a professional pursuit, something that I prepare for as a profession. There's some of you that have professions I couldn't touch with a 10-foot pole. I couldn't get anywhere near it. I would absolutely fall apart on day one on the job. That is not the case with the, with the overseer, with the elder. It's not 10 miles apart or a 10-foot pole apart. It's character. 
We're all to be in this. We're all to be pursuing these same type of ideas. The overseer is primarily then to model character traits that we should all be striving to attain. I appreciate the words of a good friend in the church who came to me and said, I don't care to become an elder, but I want to be qualified to be one. That's the attitude. That's exactly the attitude. And by God's grace, we bring that attitude to this list. We don't have to be qualified to teach. We don't have to be married. Obviously, there are things on this list that may not apply to us directly, but the basic character bent isn't yours. Are you moving there? Character matters within this assembly, and this assembly needs to be led by those who walk in faithfulness to the calling of God in their moral realm. And should the day ever come, God forbid, that any one of our overseers, elders, my own life included, should ever get out of line with the call of God upon our moral life, you people have a job to stop us. You have to do it. You cannot stop, and in a position such as mine, rest on 17 years of experience and being above reproach. If a person's not reproach above reproach in year 18, you need to stand up and say it. Because this isn't my church, it's not the church of the elders, it's the church of Jesus Christ. And so we need your prayers. We need your encouragement. But we need your constant assessment that someone who has stepped out of the line of the calling of God in these moral areas needs to be called to account. Character is key. But in all of this, let me add to that, relationships are crucial proving ground for this character. How does he relate to his family? Now this church has been always gracious to us, and I'm thankful for that, that there's not some sort of super high standard for the pastor's kids. I'm grateful for that. I thank you. I trust that will always continue. But, on the other hand, there is to be an analysis of the way the man leads his family. It's a relational community issue. How does he relate to the church? How does he line up within that assembly? How does he treat people in private and in public? It's a relational matter. How does he relate to unbelievers outside the church? What is the community's take on this man? How do they relate to him? What do they think about him? The nature of the church is one of relationships. It is our relationship with God cascading from our souls in relationship with one another. And that needs to be assessed. There needs to be a freedom to exercise proper judgment. This is a public office. That word is used, and it's used for good reason. Now we know, it hasn't been very long, uh, with very pointed illustration, that leaders in public office in this land aren't always held to a very high standard. Sometimes they are, but many times they're not. That's not the culture of the church. The culture of the church must be to elevate this calling to moral purity, to insist on it graciously, honorably, not 
in a judgmental manner, but in a way of exercising proper judgment. Elders must live among the people, and they are called by the people, and they are kept in office by the people who judge and discern that their life is morally online. What is at stake here is the gospel of Christ. So pray for the leaders of your church and pray as we would establish others in the future. Selection has nothing to do with popularity, but it has to do with who can get the job done for the glory of God within the context of this local assembly. This is the body of Jesus Christ. We are his representatives in this world. And we need to think very carefully about who we have represent him. All of this reflects on the work of Christ. Why do we care? We're not going to care if we don't have a high view of Jesus. Of the death that he died to pay the penalty of sin. And of the resurrection power that is his. And of his ruling authority in this world. Without a grand vision of what Christ has done to save his people. We will not exercise what we need to exercise in stewardship of the body. Overseers need to adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ with their lives, with their words, with their example. And we as a group and a community need to hold that standard high. Accurately, faithfully, but to hold it high. And by God's grace, we can and will. None of us as leaders is sufficient for these things. We know that. You know that. But pray for us. And by God's grace, we will continue to hold high the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our Father, we pray that you'll help us. The rules are different in this culture of the church than in the culture of our world. We need your strength. We need your help. We need your discernment. Help us, Father, to do what is right and to hold high the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. May his mind be in us as a church and in our leaders particularly. I pray, Father, for the leaders of our church and I ask God that they would be faithful to this calling, that you would expose areas where we fall aside, expose it to our own conscience that we would repent and change Expose it then if we refuse the promptings of conscience in your word and by your spirit. And if we refuse that, I pray, God, that you would expose it to others in the assembly that we might be called to account. Should any officer or any church member be hiding sin, I ask, God, that they'd repent and turn today before you answer the prayer to bring that sin into public so that they can be corrected and drawn back into the fold. We ask this, Lord, in praying also for those who do not know Christ as Savior, that you would draw them through your convicting power as we look at the life that you've called us to live. Through Jesus I pray. Amen.